Let me tell you a story, podcast number 112. It was the best of times, it was the worst of times. Call me Ishmael. It was the age of wisdom. Some years ago, age never mind it is a how truth long You don't know about me without you. Welcome to Let Me Tell You a Story with your hosts, Steve and Becky Lyles. Settle back into your seat, step onto your favorite fitness machine or a lace of your walking shoes, and enjoy stories from a variety of genres and authors. Hi, this is Steve. Hi, this is Becky. Marguerite and Steve Martell have graciously driven through a snowstorm to be with us today. They didn't have to drive far because we live on the same side of town, but still, they came out in the cold to share their story with us. They'll be talking about how they faced the fact that their marriage was failing and decided to do something about it. Now, before you singles in our listening audience push the off button, marriages are, at the core, about maintaining good relationships. We're all in relationships with someone, whether a friend, a neighbor, a co-worker, or a spouse, so stay tuned. I'm sure we'll all learn how to better deal with conflict and how to nurture and heal troubled unions. A brief introduction, Marguerite and Steve have been married for 20 years, which is admirable at any time, but especially in this day and age. So congratulations to both of you. That's quite an accomplishment. Also, I happen to know that this is a second marriage for both of you, which brings me to my first question. When you two married, did you think, this time I'll do it right, or this will be better because this person is a better fit for me? Before I get to the question, I first want to thank both Becky and Steve for inviting us, for having us here, and um, believing that what we've done in our life and marriage to God is important, that we have something to say. I cannot say at the time that we got together that I thought, this has to last, I'm going to make it work. But I do know that over time, that became a predominant thing that carried me through. Another failure was just not acceptable. You can't keep taking the same mistakes and moving on to somebody else. Something has to change within you. And that was a very strong motivator. I have to get it right, at least for me. Yes, I agree with Marguerite. Um, I think a marriage failure is difficult for any Christian. And at a point, you do ask yourself, Um, What part did I play in that? Although I don't think it was predominant in my thinking as to how I would go about this second marriage differently. As Becky had suggested, I did feel this was a very different person than my first marriage and I instantly felt that we were much more connecting. The relationship was at deeper levels even from the very beginning. I had no idea of what it would take to continue the relationship at those levels, but instantly I think both Marguerite and I did feel a deep connection, strangely, that we did not feel with our first spouses. 
And it's difficult to say why, other than I think we definitely felt a spiritual connection, that God had a purpose in bringing us together that perhaps wasn't there in our first marriages. It sounds like you got off to a good start. What happened? Well, about five years into it, we found ourselves 3,000 miles apart on the opposite side of the United States with a real crisis. And though our love was definitely very strongly there, like Steve said, there was very deep torrents underneath that we didn't realize it would take so much. Really, ultimately, in hindsight, God's working through us to keep it together. At a point, we just realized we were rubbing up a against each other so raw all the time that though we loved each other, there just was too much brokenness within each of us that when that brokenness came together, it was just like shards scraping against each other. And the very person that you loved the most, you ended up hurting the most. And when we decided that we were going to give God our lives in a deeper way, we uh, came back and, and re-met together and decided to go into counseling. We took a test with uh, the counselor who we just really love. He's just a godly, wonderful, wonderful man. Very loving, very kind, so we felt very safe with him. And I'll never forget it. Gets the test back and he's just walking towards us, waving them in the air, saying, well, you guys should have never gotten married in the first place. I mean, you were bound to get a divorce. You have failed on all of the points, except for faith and love. And I, I think that being committed in your life to Christ first, to getting it right within you first, trying to live the mature Christian life to become really in the full stature of Christ is probably first and foremost, and then that poured into the love that's been the foundational to help us through over the last 20 years. Yeah, I agree with what Marguerite has said. I think our relationship's a good example really to anybody out there of, I think natural attraction. I mean, if natural attraction is what relationships are about, then nobody needs God. We just need to find somebody we're constantly attracted to. And Marguerite and I had that. I think what we found is that upbringing, that was one of the things of the tests, our, our ways of relating to family was very different. We failed in areas of in-laws. We failed in areas of child rearing. We failed in areas of finances. We failed in areas of good communication, ways of not being defensive. I could go on and literally what our pastor had told us, or these are the real issues that you end up in a lifelong relationship dealing with that continually create frictions and problems if you can't work through them. Marguerite said we scored high in faith and love. Really, the categories were, were more spiritual. Um, how do you relate to God? How important is God in your life? And we did score high on that, fortunately. And the other was love in the way, do you like your mate? Are you sexually attracted to your mate? And we scored high on that. 
But most everything else, as I had said, we failed. We didn't like each other's in-laws. We didn't relate good to the children together. We had no financial goals that we had communicated about. And these things began to create problems as the pastor had forewarned us. As our relationship began to mature, uh, these are the things you do deal with day in and day out. And so what Marguerite and I found ourselves is liking each other in certain areas of our life, but kind of alienated from things when you don't feel you can really talk to the person about other things that matter. The crisis is that we ended up separated, not legally, but she left me and, and went back east to spend some time with her sister. And I had to think about things and she had to think about things. And this led eventually to a crisis in our lives, a turning point with Jesus Christ when we realized literally our marriage has little chance of success leaving it to natural forces. If we left it to natural forces, Marguerite and I would be divorced today and on a number either three or four. So we are very glad that we made the turnaround in uh, our lives and, and began to take seriously our spiritual lives. What would it take in our walk with Jesus Christ to overcome very real issues in our marital differences? So you're sitting in this pastor's office. You know your marriage is in crisis. You've come, at least one of you, has come 3,000 miles um, to work on your marriage. So what did the pastor say to you? I don't know that our pastor, who also was a Steve, we've got three Steves now in this conversation, who also is a Steve, I don't know that he necessarily told us anything. I think he realized it was such a calamity if we ourselves didn't realize the seriousness of the, uh, of the division in the road. What, what path are you going to take? And it was really only something we could come to that conclusion, and we did. We, we absolutely knew it, because before I came back, I told Steve, my husband, we have to get radical with God. We have to live the way the early Christians live. You have extraordinary knowledge. You brought me to Christ. And we shouldn't be getting a divorce. This is not what Christians do. It's the antithesis of everything that Christ stands for. He stands for life, for abundance, for goodness, for wholeness. People should be looking at us and they should be like loving each other more. They should be like, I want what they have. This is just great. And I said, this is shameful. This is not we have more. We have more available, and we're just not tapping into it. So fortunately, we went into our pastor's office knowing that we were going to have to do something super radical. I mean, radical, maybe not for other people who were better Christians or more moral or came from better, but for us who had pretty broken examples in our lives. Um, we were going to have to do an about-face from one 
where we were at with all of our goals in life, everything that we wanted out of life, everything that we thought a good Christian who signed on the dotted line, their name, and went to church and tithed and voted. I mean, nobody would have ever thought that there was anything wrong with us. Everything was underneath our roof. It was just in our house. People thought we were so in love. We had the best relationship. Everything was great. But that wasn't true. Um, so I, I think we knew we needed to do something radical, and we did. We set out on an absolutely radical journey that not only saved our marriage, but because I, I think God starts wherever you're at and he can use that. But the ultimate goal is to really become what God made us for, which is extraordinary heroes, really. And we weren't to be heroes. What was radical for you? And talk more about the heroes part, too. Well, Marguerite and I, when we met, she was a rising interior designer, went to a prestigious school. I was a faux painter in Carmel, working for the very wealthy and elite in society. And when we pooled our abilities early in our relationship, we knew instantly that we could travel in the circles that we wanted to. And within a year of getting together, we were making well in excess of six figures a year. And it seemed like that was just the beginning. So financially, it looked like we had clear sailing. We had an incredible wardrobe. We had incredible vehicles we felt that the world was really at our feet, so to speak, in our own little way. There was always gonna be richer people, better looking people, blah, 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 blah. But we knew we had what it took to make our mark in this world. The radicalness that you're asking, Steve, um, Becky, is that we came to a point through prayer after Marguerite and I reconnected again that our commitment to God was going to involve shutting down our business. Uh, we determined to leave the country, move to Mexico, and for the rest of our lives, we felt we just wanted to focus on what it meant to be a Christian without the glitz and glamour and attractions of earning a living in, in San Francisco Bay Area, where both of us were very tempted by uh, the, the ideas of what we could accomplish in that world. And so we literally, at one point, wrote a letter to every one of our clients we wrote a letter to every one of our suppliers that we bought uh, expensive furnishings and fabrics from, and we told them that we were closing down our business to become more committed disciples of Christ, and that we did not think we would ever be starting the business up again. To do that, we prayed of where we would live, and the Lord, in our prayers, we really felt three different places came to mind. One was Cabo San Lucas, Mexico, one was Santa Fe, New Mexico, and the other was Bozeman, Montana. And we felt the Lord wanted us to shut down our business 
in such a way that we really never could, never, and we never did, reopen it up again. It was shut down kind of in a way that there really was no road back to it, even if we wanted it. And we prayed through it, and, and the Lord led us to Cabo San Lucas, where we went for 13 months, although when we left, we thought it was for life. Um, and so for 13 months, we really did nothing together but pray, read God's Word, talk about the Scriptures, walk our dog on the beach, eat meals together. We went there with some money, quite a bit, and the money started dwindling pretty fast because we had no income while we were in Mexico. So at a fairly, and we were staying at a place that we were paying about 3000 a month while we were down there in Mexico. So the money was going. And that began us on a path that we've never veered from. Um, we've been doing it now for 20 years, going where we feel the Lord leads us, Business is secondary. We all need money to live. But I would say for me, one of the biggest consistencies that came out of that period that we do today is we have minimally one hour together every day of what we call spiritual time, food. We take the scriptures and Marguerite and I go through them together. And in that hour, we'll read a certain passage and we will discuss it for that entire hour. And I would say for 20 years now, we have gone through the whole Bible, Genesis to Revelation, maybe four or five times together as a couple just in our morning devotions. It's not five days a week. It's seven days a week. It's on Christmas Day. It's on Easter. It's on our birthdays. There's no time that we ever think we're not going to do this. And that began in Mexico. And to me, that's been such a foundation for keeping us on track of how we want to think and how we want to live in this world. Steve had asked about the hero part. Like my Steve was saying, by the time the money ran out, God led us. He let us live our extravagant ways that we were used to, knowing it was going to come to an end. And we made a commitment to him to not leave Mexico until he released us, not call our families, not come back. And we got to a place of, I mean, rock bottom poverty, which for us was just ridiculous. I mean, here's two Anglo-Saxons, good-looking Whatever clothing we had was tattered, but it was labels at one time. Well-spoken, educated, and people are wondering, why are you living like that? I mean, we didn't look like we were living underneath a bridge. We had done work in exchange for a room, so nobody ever provided for us, or we didn't beg or anything, but we had gotten down to rock-bottom poverty. And uh, I think from the world standpoint, that's how you would see it. But from God's standpoint, it's spiritual. I mean, I think we were like Abraham and Sarah. I think that poverty in the flesh gave us extraordinary spiritual, well, economy, you might say. 
We were able to see God work in our lives. Uh, we never went without a meal, even if we only had one a day. We never starved. We never, our dog didn't go without food. We had a roof over our head. And I think, you know, we all love the stories, fairy tales, hero stories. And Becky, as a writer, knows that people think, oh, there's five main plots, there's seven main plots, there's... But I like the one that in Spider-Man, his high school English teacher said there's only one plot. Who are you becoming? A hero or a villain? And you know, when I think about that, and I think about, well, what is a hero? At the end of the story, we love heroes. I mean, we see them. They're amazing. They become immortalized. But when we look at their life, I mean, take the story of Cinderella. I mean, she's there cleaning up ashes. She's cleaning up after her ratty stepsisters and her horrible mother. She's dirty. She's in rags. She's filthy. She's cold. She's hungry. And yet, she's choosing to do the right thing. She's choosing to live above what drags most people down. She's choosing to be like in the recent one of Kenneth Branagh's film of Cinderella. She's choosing to have courage and be kind. I think we can insulate ourselves through money, through position, through our looks, through being funny, where if everything's going our way, we can be the hero in quotes, meaning we look like a hero because we never get angry. We're smiling, we're laughing all the time. Everything's great. You know, the perfect picture of the nice house and the couple and they've got the Mercedes Benz and they're on each other's arm and they're dressed up beautifully and they're heading out to Ruth Chris and they have tons in the bank and everything is great. And they don't like each other, but they would never say that because everything's just so great because they have money and their life is wonderful and they're beautiful people. And But I don't know, what, what really is the hero? And I guess this brings us to the heart of marriage. What I mean, what is a hero? A hero is loving, loving, you loving. I love what I can do for you. It's you becoming like God. It's, it's you in that marriage saying, I married you to love you, to do what I can do for you. And Steve likes to say, selfishness is not in self-interest because love is the only sustainable economy. I just, to me, I think love being the heroes, it's a, you're sustaining an economy. I mean, we all want a utopia. We all want everything to go right, but I mean, how do you really get that? Is it smiling and glitz and glamour or in the heart of your home, you love each other, really, genuinely? Because you've worked through all the stuff that we we've, have as props to make us feel better about ourselves. And I really think marriage, I think your partner is a mirror. And the way you feel about them, the way you treat them, the way you act towards them says more about you than them. And vice versa, for them also. Because if love is, I love what I can do for you, then it is immaterial if it's reciprocal. It can't be. That's not your goal. So being the hero is, I mean, God forced us to be the hero in Mexico. And I love it because when we didn't want to do it, you feel yourself starting to rise, rise to the occasion, rise to be what God wants. I mean, we're immortals. He made us in his image, a creature made in the image of a God. I think that's the highest thing that he's made. Angels are ministers of fire there, but we're made in the image of God. 
he's given us his image. That's extraordinary. I mean, what, if that's not the hero, I don't know what it is. And I think we all want that. I mean, I really do. I think we do. And I think we forget. We forget through all the busyness and the stuff, the props that we've brought in our life to prevent us from the pain of going through the eye of the storm and coming out on the other side. I like that, going through the eye of the storm. Steve, do you have anything to add to that? I think the role models we get of the hero are, are very different. I think of the world and I think of the Bible. I think of Jesus Christ. Uh, he's my ultimate hero, obviously. We love the, the, the apostles, the prophets, the Moseses, the Davids. In the world, you have James Dean, Frank Sinatra, I Did It My Way, the first billionaire, the first, uh, the, you know, the most beautiful woman on the planet, the sexiest woman, whatever. Uh, those are all different ways we perceive of a hero. And coming through the eye of the storm, Becky, I think is choosing God's way to be a hero. We value different things than the world does. And I think the difficulty with coming through God's way of being a hero is um, it's not going to appeal to your flesh. You may not get the recognition that you're going to get from the world. God's doing something on a completely different level. And I think you have to give up the images of the worldly hero. The worldly hero is about you. The worldly hero is about what you've accomplished. The worldly hero is about how much money you've amassed or what you've done or invented or this or the legacy you're leaving. The godly hero is always about coming through the eye of the storm. Um, it's about accepting God's call and being willing to go on a path that he describes as picking up your cross and following him. It's going on a path that he describes as losing your life that you might find it. These are all very different than what we're modeled. And I think for Marguerite and I, we both love the image of the worldly hero. I mean, I'd love to pull off my outer jacket and you see a big S on my chest. And Marguerite would like to be Elizabeth Hurley with, uh, on the cover of Cosmopolitan. We've had to give up any idea, really, that that's not what God wants for us. That's not the image he made us in, as she commented. And so becoming a hero is much more humble than that. It's much harder than that. It doesn't agree with everything that you want, and it's sacrificial in nature. And I think that is coming through the eye of the storm. And I think that most of us don't want to do it, to be honest. I think we would much rather um, buy into some other way, some other path, something that doesn't ask us to uh, walk in the particular way that Jesus walked. How would you boil this down in a paragraph or two for those listening who are going through relationship issues? 
Well, that's a good question, Steve, because I'm sure the, the main thing is you want people to go away with something that's practical. What can they do? Obviously, I think the first thing we would say is, are you at a point where you're ready in your own life to make what is for you a radical commitment to Jesus Christ? What's he asking of you today? I know he is something because he's still asking things of me today. Things that are hard, things that are difficult. Is that the path we want to go down? Do we want to continue on that path of asking the Lord what he wants of us today? In what ways can we be effective in our mate's life? In which ways can we lay down our lives for our mates? Or become the heroes, so to speak, to our mates? I think on a practical level, radical commitment to Jesus always involves minimally two things. For every Christian, and this isn't particular to Marguerite or I or anybody else, but you can't do any of this without prayer, and you can't do any of this without the Word of God. I think we're going through a lot of Christian motions without those things in our lives because those are the things that connect us to to God himself. And so I think, one, are you ready for a radical commitment to him? What's he asking of you to do? It's probably not go to Mexico. It's probably not quit your job. It's something. Maybe it's stopping a, a flirtation that you have. Maybe it's not going to places that are difficult for you to act in a Christ-like way. And then again, are you making priorities? I would set a schedule of having time with God. I don't think that's legalistic. I think it's biblical. I think you can't do it without him. So those are two practical things in a paragraph that I would write easily saying, here's a starting point. I would agree with all of that, and I would add one additional thing. Often when there is a problem, we attack it head on, and all that ends up doing is making us focus more on the problem. So, for instance, you're hitting a crisis point, everything your mate's doing is bothering you. Of course, it's all their problem. It's all their fault. If they just didn't do this, and they just didn't do that, and they just didn't do this, everything would be fine. One, we know that that's not true. They can't be all the problem because you're human, you're faulty just like them, and it's not biblical. Probably the greatest help for me is when I have realized that God's commands are to an individual. They're not for somebody to get somebody else to do something. The command is to an individual for you to want to be something better, something else. So practically speaking, what you have to do is you have to stop focusing so much on actually trying to fix it by thinking about your spouse, thinking about the problem, thinking about what they're doing wrong, thinking about how you can solve it, and actually say, what can I do today? What do I need to do? What if, what if I stopped focusing on everything that's irritating, everything that's mounding up and is becoming so huge that I can't see a way past it and take it all off the table and say, you know what? First and foremost, God made me what? He made me as a soul. 
that takes delight in me and I take delight in him. I have a purpose. Now I am married and that's part of it. But what can I do today to change my attitude? Because if I keep thinking my mate's all the problem, well, one, I can't change my mate. It's not true. I'm part of the problem. But it's certainly not making me feel very loving towards that person. But what I can do is I can say, I know I can be more loving. I know that, that I do know. And that's where, like Steve said, prayer is huge. I would not make it through a day without asking the Holy Spirit to please help me. I can be the meanest, most cutting, most sarcastic, proud, arrogant, superior human being that you will find on the planet, just stuck on themselves to no end. But the problem is, is I'm the problem. The problem's in me. And the problem's shadowing me everywhere I go. So how can I fix my problem if I am the problem? I've created that person. I don't think we're meant to do it alone. I think we're meant to just be honest. I don't think God's holding a sledgehammer over our head. I think he knows everything more about us than we know about ourselves. And he only gradually moves us to a clearer understanding because he doesn't want to bomb us out. So I think being honest with what you know, just as a friend, just as a human, just as a mom, a dad, a wife, a husband, wherever you're at, as a human, could I love my neighbor better as myself? And your mate is your neighbor. It's the first neighbor. It's the other half of you. There is no other more other than your other half. <laughs> There's just not. So if you can't love your mate, you're really not loving other people. You know what? They're easy and they're fun to be around, to play around with, to laugh and joke, but you don't have to go home with them. So I start with just simply saying, okay, Lord, I know I'm going to have these challenges today. I really need help because I really do want to please you. I really do want to be another kind of a person. I want to be a lovely person. I want to be the kind of person that in my old age, people look at and say, isn't she great to be around? Isn't she nice? I'd like to have her over. Well, I'd like to go do something fun with her. She's nice. She's sweet. She's just, she's fun. She's delightful rather than, oh Lord, don't invite that crabby old lady to the house. Oh my gosh. She's stuck on herself. She's never going to stop. And I don't stop. Lord's still working on my mouth. But I mean, you know what I'm saying? It's practical. And still on the practical, uh, people are going to wonder just what exactly did happen in Mexico. I know you changed individually, but did you fall more in love? Did you uh, make an agreement? Did you, what happened in, when you walked away in 13 months? What was the outcome? I think the answer might be a, a little disappointing on some levels because it's a strange thing. I think, again, referring to a worldly concept of romance, people would have thought our pre-Mexico experience was more romantic, for sure. We went out to dinner whenever we wanted, wherever we wanted. We got dressed up and went to San Francisco twice a week together. We weren't with other people. It was just us. We enjoyed being with each other. There were just other destructive qualities. I think, interestingly, after Mexico, we were more grounded as human beings. Those types of things of, of being able to go out uh, didn't matter. Our love was more 
practical in the sense that it was, I think, could be felt more in our everyday living experience than having to be some kind of movie romance kind of thing where we get an image of, of a romance that we like. It's been very practical. It's been very comfortable. I think that kind of romance, as I, it's, we started this thing, comes and goes. It's not something that is, is lasting. And I think what is lasting is trust in your mate, intimacy with your mate, the ability to communicate with your mate. And we left Mexico with much better ability to communicate, trust one another, enjoy each other's company without all of the extracurricular activities. And so in some ways, it's not a Hollywood romance fulfilled. It's a, it's a moving on to a very mature, trusting, deeper commitment to each other where today we enjoy being with each other. We don't look to, to not be with each other. When we go out to dinner, it's what's happening at our table that we're interested in. It's what the other person that's sitting across from me that I'm interested in. It's those kinds of things that I think became more tangible after Mexico. And I think for Marguerite and I, they're more real because both of us are very, um, what's the word you use, idealistic about romance. And I think we tended to think of all of the, you know, the swipe sweeping off of your feet and to be total tantalized with that individual 24-7. And they can make you laugh harder than anybody else, make you more excited than anybody else, do things for you no other human could possibly ever do. And that was not what God was teaching us in Mexico. It's to make that person the center of your life. As Marguerite said, make that person the center of your life when they're not tantalizing you, when they're not the funniest person on the earth. And uh, I think because of that, our trust has grown. Our confidence that we are connected to each other is on a whole different foundation than it was before Mexico. I would agree with Steve. Probably the thing that changed the most and I don't know that we made a commitment to do it or we were active. It's, it's a matter, I think, of being connected to one of my favorite titles of God, the ground of all reality. He is reality. And he and all of my friends just thought we had the best relationship. We were adorable together. Steve would always bring me flowers, coffees. I mean, they just thought, my God, you can't get better than this. And Steve always was very loving, very um, just super abundant, uh, giving me lots of things, spoiling me, and vice versa. And that's not what was crumbling our marriage, that we didn't love each other. But when you are all dressed up and you're feeling great about yourself because it's all a falseness and you're taking that in, and you're always revving the person up again, like Steve said, that's the world's way. So you look like a woman of the world. He acts like a man of the world. And thus what happens is you're really meeting on the opposite of the ground of all reality. You're, you're meeting in a completely dream world that you've created. And what was tearing us apart was 
our selfishness behind the scenes. It was the pain we were causing each other that you don't ever think is hurting the person. My mood swings, you know, his flirtations, you know, which they all, everything looks just normal and fine. Everybody thinks everything's fine. That's what everybody does, right? I mean, everybody's like that. Give me a break. That's being human. But it's not being human because human is the image of God. That's, that's not being human. That is something other than what we were created to be. And I agree with Steve. It was not at all flashy. You come back and you're learning real love. You're learning to be honest. You're learning, like he said, when you're not the funniest or looking your cutest. And funny thing is, is we still get dressed up and go out together. But that is not what we need to be those things to love each other. Thank you so much, Marguerite and Steve, for, for being real, for bearing your souls for us. I can say from knowing the Martells for several years that they're not just talking, they're not just saying what they think a good marriage ought to be, but they live it, and they've been a great example to those around them. So we hope you appreciate their wise words as much as we have. I hope you enjoyed this podcast and found it helpful. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, live your story to the fullest. Thank you for listening to Let Me Tell You a Story. Please email your comments, suggestions, and submissions to story at beckylyles.com. Steve and Becky like to hear your thoughts, and they encourage authors to send stories and other short prose and poetry for them to read on the podcast. You can learn more about Becky's books by visiting beckylyles.com or by searching for her books online. Her nonfiction titles can be found under the name Becky Lyles and her fiction under Rebecca Carrie Lyles. All of her books are available in both print and ebook formats. Winds of Wyoming and Winds of Freedom are also offered in audio format online. That's all for now. Tune in next time to enjoy a fresh assortment of stories on Let Me Tell You a Story.